going to continue of our consideration of the Christian armor suggested to us in the verses of Ephesians 6. This morning we're particularly going to be noting that piece of armor suggested to us in verse 17. The helmet of salvation. But let's read from verse 12 down through verse 17 and bring our minds back into line with the whole picture that's being suggested. Ephesians 6 verse 12, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye might be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. We'll end there, trusting that the Lord will bless his word to our hearts for Jesus' sake. Again, we're going to consider this morning the fifth of the six pieces of armor suggested to us in these verses, the helmet of salvation. But before we go further, let's just ask the Lord to meet with us for Jesus' sake. Lord in heaven, now we would pray that thou wouldst bless our time in the word of God. May it be that we truly hear the voice of our shepherd, that we would be those who, because we recognize that voice, a voice of our God himself, that we would be quick to follow, that we would be quick to believe, that we would be quick to obey. Lord, I pray that thou wilt let these moments that we have before us be helped by the Spirit of God to the good of our souls. Lord, I pray that thou wilt help me as thy servant, that thou wilt direct thought and word. I pray that you will help these who hear. May every heart be opened every mind be enlightened and every true heart of faith be quickened by your spirit's power and drawing. Lord, I pray now that thou would bless us then. We pray against the wicked one that thou will keep him away and out, all of his distractions turned aside that we might behold Christ in the word today. And we pray it all in his precious name and for his sake. Amen. As I mentioned a moment ago, we come to the fifth of these pieces of armor mentioned in Ephesians chapter 6. I stress to you that if we allow our minds to simply picture these pieces of armor as poetic suggestions, of how we are to steel ourselves with a mental resolve to do right and valiant things in the name of the Lord, 
we will miss entirely what the Lord intends for us to see. If we merely think that taking the shield of faith as a suggestion to look at everything through the glasses of believing positivity, by that I mean we do not understand the whole point. If we think that having on the breastplate of righteousness is simply a picturesque way to suggest that we have to have a thick skin to Satan and to sin, again, we have missed the meaning. The key to understanding what Paul is saying is to deeply consider and comprehend the grace that is tied to each piece of armor. That is the key. Understanding what faith actually is and how faith works in our hearts helps us to see its great power and why it is a shield. The same is true for each of the pieces of armor. With this in mind, the goal of these messages is to bring us all to see the nature of the God-given graces that prove to be our protection against the wiles and attacks of the devil. Knowing and possessing these graces suits us for battle and protects us from harm. Today, we will consider the protecting grace of God described as the helmet of salvation. This is a commonly understood article of armor. A helmet securely worn on the head is to protect against blows to the head that would be lethal. As we relate this picture to the spiritual, we can imagine numerous applications. In thinking of the head, we could consider the senses that, are, that find their center in the head. There is sight and hearing. There is taste and smell. We might imagine that the man who is truly saved will find the assurance of his salvation both a motive and a cause for him to guard what he looks at, listens to, and takes to his mouth. And may we also may also well guard that which comes out of his mouth. But the greater application that is to be made here is not so keenly tied to external senses, but that which is inside the head, meaning the mind. The mind. Salvation is a protection of the mind and governor of how and what a man thinks. Scholars that I read on this verse have suggested that the helmet is an assurance of salvation that brings protection to a man's mind. The thought is that if we know we are truly we have a confidence that keeps us amid the battle with sin. Well, this is no doubt true, but I suggest that this travels only a short way down the road of what's being said here. 
the protection of the head and mind against the horrific attacks leveled by Satan, meaning the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, requires an absolute foundation in knowledge. This cannot be what I think or feel about my state, my assurance. For these are as prone to change as the wind. Assurance and my knowledge must be in that which is rock solid. Now let me read a couple of verses to establish where I'm going with all this. Isaiah chapter 12, verse 2. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. Psalm 27 verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 38 verse 22. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Psalm 140, verse 7. O God, the Lord, the strength of my salvation, thou hast covered my head in the day of battle. Perhaps you can see where I'm going with this, but I'll say it plainly. It is the person of our Savior who is the salvation that we must set our minds on. The knowledge of Christ, thinking on Christ, knowing him for us is a helmet of salvation. What we know of him and what we know of what he has done is that which will keep us. Again, I stress the knowledge of Christ is a helmet to our minds. Paul sets forth the knowledge of Christ as a supreme gift of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 and 31, he says, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. You could supply the word salvation there for the word redemption. He has made to us salvation. According as it is written, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. What you're thinking, what you're knowing, let it be of the Lord. Let that be your glory. I also would suggest this. Consider Paul's prayer for a cherished from earlier in the chapters of Ephesians. Chapter 3, Paul prays this. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded, apprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. 
So I suggest to you the point is this. The more you know of Christ Jesus personally and his work, the more protected your mind will be from fear and doubt and the drawing power of sin. When Peter was concluding his second epistle to the people that he dearly loved, he said these words, 2 Peter chapter 3, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Let him that glory, glory in the Lord. The point is plain. What you know of Christ is for you a helmet that protects the mind from all the fiery lies the questions and accusations that come from the mouth of the dragon. There is no disturbing of the rest of the mind to those who truly know the Lord Jesus. Let me say that again. There is no disturbing of the mind and the rest of the mind to those who truly know the Lord Jesus. That's the argument that we have been reading through these verses. Now there may be distress. But it does not win over the mind. And evil. Or too evil. And the heart. To sin. So my proposition to you this morning. That which I would seek to prove. Very simply is this. Knowing Christ. Is a helmet given from the hand of God. To every soldier. Who would endure hardness for his sake. See the picture. God himself hands you the helmet. Know Christ. Know him. Personally. I've got four things I'm going to present to you this morning. In support saying here. First I want you to tell me. That knowing Christ is a defense. Knowing Christ is a defense. A question for you. What do you hold up when the devil fires his worst at you? Whether it is accusation or temptation or fear. What do you hold up? Well, my answer to you is this. You hold up what you know. You hold up what you know. Knowledge, then... And I stress this, knowledge is not just a mental agreement that all the facts line up. It is not the state of understanding the theory of things. The knowledge of which we speak here is not being doctrinal or creedal or moral. The knowledge of which the scriptures speak, the scriptures which, which we have just noted, is experiential. To know Christ by experience. It is that which we have been led to understand and to prove of Christ personally. Now, another question for you, rhetorical. How many ways and on how many fronts will Satan attack our minds? 
think about this with me. How many ways and on how many fronts will Satan attack our minds? Well, we can't begin to number, but I will illustrate one of them. Think with me about this occasion. In John chapter 9, the Lord Jesus comes to the sheep gate there in Jerusalem, and he heals a young blind man. Young, because the scripture says he was substantially younger than me, and I'm young, so he must have been young. Young man. But this young man, upon interrogation by the Pharisees, is threatened with excommunication. Excommunication. In other words, he, it means that he is going to be cut off from his people. And being cut off from the people is far more than becoming an outcast. It is a suggestion then that this man has no place in God. It suggests that this man is now under the condemnation of God, that ultimately now this man will be damned. To be cut off from the people is to be cut off from God. Numbers 15.31, talking about a man who would despise the commandments of the Lord and do the, that which is told, he is told not to. It says there, because he hath despised the word of the Lord and hath broken his commandment, that that, that soul shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be upon him. Do you understand that when this young man is being excommunicated by the Pharisees, that is a pronouncement from them, you cannot in any way ever be free from your sin. It will always be upon you. Therefore, you are one who will be damned. Now you take that thought. If you believed that that was true or saw that as the meaning of what was being done, wouldn't it cause a bit of a, a fear within you? Wouldn't it be something that would be traumatic, in fact? An incredibly fearsome moment? I say that this could unhinge many men. But what was the statement from this young man? In chapter 9 of John, verse 25, he answered and said, Whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. But one thing I know. There it is. One thing I know. That whereas I was blind, now I see. This man pointed to what he knew experientially of Christ. That knowledge kept him even though he was being threatened with the worst of all possible threats. Well, let's hear a few other applications or uh, ways in which the devil might come to us and cause us distress. Sometimes you and I find ourselves afflicted. What does the devil have to say about that? What does he suggest to us as the reason why we are afflicted, whether it is physically with physical maladies or whether we're afflicted by uh, oppression of others. What does he usually say is the reason for such a thing? Well, chiefest among those is that the devil accuses God of having done us wrong. Oh, God has done you bad this time. He has left you high and dry. He hasn't provided for you. He hasn't loved you. He hasn't given to you. He hasn't answered you. He hasn't made your heart rest. Look at what God has done to you. 
Or he may say something like this, you drip with sin. Now, you know why you're afflicted? Because you are rotten to the core. You don't deserve anything. You have nothing that you can point to that's of any use in trying to get you free from this. But what does the scripture say about this accusation of Satan? Psalm 119, verse 75. Hear these words specifically. I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right, and that thou in faithfulness hast afflicted me. Has God done you wrong because you're afflicted? Is it some evil that is on your docket, so to speak, or on your ledger that keeps you from knowing all these things? It's because of what you are. Well, the Lord says he afflicts in faithfulness. Why? Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But what happens after the affliction? Let's think of another one. Another application. The devil suggests that we are going without. Oh, you're, you're lacking here. Oh, you are so short on what you ought to have. Why does he say that? What does he use as a proof for that? Again, God has done you wrong. God has not been faithful to you. He has not got you in his mind. He has not loved you. Uh, he is not giving you what you need. You're going without. Or, again, you blew it. Therefore, on the basis of your failure, you're just going to have to do without. God's mercies are not yours anymore. God's loving kindnesses are, well, they're forfeit. What says the scripture? Again, notice the word here. I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and the right of the poor. I know that God does not let me go without that which is truly needful. Though I have to say I am a poor man in so many ways. And how many ways can you say, I am poor? He doesn't let you sit in that poverty if you belong to Christ. I know this is the truth about my God. Therefore, your accusation, your attack against my mind, O thou enemy, is not true. Knowing the truth about Jesus Christ is a helmet against the attacks of the devil on our mind and his accusation. Let me give you another one. The devil says, you should fear You should fear death. What is it? I mean, all that struggle and all that pain and all that anguish that you have to go through in those final moments, you're gasping and you're, oh, how terrible it is. Would God really let you go through all that if he loved you? But then again, think about this, what happens after that? Nah. Well, what about that? How do you really know that you are going to know the pleasures of the Lord forevermore? Uh, you ought to fear. You ought to fear. What do you say to that? Well, what did Paul say to that? 
in his commenting to Timothy about his near demise. What does Paul say? 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2. For I know, again, there's that word, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Against what day? The day of my arriving where he is forevermore. I know who he is. I know what he has done. I know what he has promised. I know his character. I know his all the things that have to do with his holiness. I know about his purity. I know him. Therefore, I trust in him. I know him. Therefore, what you say, Satan, has no power. Let me finish this point by reading to you some verses that we actually began our services with. Verses of confidence. Verses that stress to us that we know the Lord and his goodness to be a defense for us. Psalm 56 verse 9. When I cry unto thee, then shall mine enemies turn back. Okay, here's the picture. Here's Satan with all his darts firing him at your head and your mind trying to persuade you all the things that you should be distressed about. When I cry unto thee, then shall my enemies turn back. This I know, for God is with me. Why is it that the enemies will turn back? When he says, this I know, is he saying, I know that my enemies will turn back? Well, rather, I think it's this. I know that God is for me, and because of that, I know my enemies then, as a result, will turn away. In God have I put my trust. I will not be afraid what man can do unto me. Thy vows are upon me, O God, I will render praises unto thee. For thou hast delivered my soul from death. Wilt thou not deliver my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the land in light of the living? Knowing Jesus is a defense. That's a point here that's being very adamantly stressed to us. Second, knowing Jesus is a deterrent. Psalm 119, verse 9 and following, speak about how it is that a a man may be able to find himself delivered from the power of sin. That it would, the the power that keeps him from going the way of sin or, or succumbing to the suggestions of the wicked one. Psalm 119, verse 9, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Here's the point. To know Christ, to love Christ, and to walk with Christ is the answer to sin. How do I have victory over sin? It doesn't come by resolve. It doesn't come by you having um, a best buddy that you can confess your sins to who can call you up on the phone every once in a while and tell you you're not doing right. The answer to sin is to know Christ and then to love Christ and to walk with Christ. Paul says it this way, 2 Corinthians 5 and 14, for the love of Christ constrains us 
or constraint. It's that which causes us to do what we ought to do and not to do the things we ought not. Oh, I say when our minds know the Lord, we have the power of the Holy Spirit using that to turn us from sin. So again, I stress the answer to sin in the heart is the knowledge of Christ. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 4 speaks of this where it says, And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. Knowing the Lord is that which causes sin to retreat. Doesn't the scripture say very plainly, First John, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. Those two things are linked. They're not disjointed statements. If we're walking with Christ, we're knowing Christ, we're loving Christ, we're fellowshipping with Christ, then we find that the ministry that we receive from his hand as we do that very thing is that we find that the blood of uh, of the Lord Jesus cleanses us from sin. But let me caution. But if there's a refusal to know the Lord, to know I'm not going to do this. Uh-uh. I'm not going to do I'm, I, I'm with you, Satan. I, I can, what you just said makes good sense to me that God has done me wrong, that I am not doing... Uh, the things that deserve what I'm seeing and all the other. I conclude, yes, I'm with you on this. What's the result of that? Isaiah 5. Therefore my people are gone into captivity because they have no knowledge. And their honorable, honorable men are famished and their multitude dried up with thirst. Therefore hell hath enlarged herself and opened her mouth without measure, and their glory, and their multitude, and their pomp, and he that rejoiceth shall descend into it. A refusal to know Christ, to walk with Christ, is that which will bring destruction. The blows of the wicked one against the head will find its mark and do its damage. I want us to think of a third thing. And that is this. That knowing Christ is a desire. It is a defense. It is a deterrent. But knowing Christ is also a desire. Paul sets forth how much knowing Christ means. And the power that it bestows. When he says to the Philippians. Philippians 3 verse 8. Yea doubtless and I count all things but loss. For the excellency of. Of the knowledge of Christ. Then he goes on to say. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And do count them but dung. That I may win Christ. And be found in him. Not having mine own righteousness. Which is of the law. But that which is through faith of Christ. The righteousness which is of God by faith. That I may know him. And the power of his resurrection. And the fellowship of his sufferings. Being made conformable. Unto his death. Desiring Christ is a product of a man who knows Christ. When we desire Christ, we find that we are those 
who live loose to the things that are not of Christ. Let me just say it this way. The mind cannot desire Christ and desire the world at the same time. Can't be done. Luke 16, verse 13, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. My point here is that the man who knows Christ Jesus will find that he doesn't love the world anymore. Knowing Jesus is a desire. But then last, I say this. Knowing Jesus is a delight. To know the Lord Jesus in truth is to find delight to the heart and mind. May I suggest to you a couple of verses from Song of Solomon. Verse 9 of chapter 5. What is thy beloved more than another beloved, O thou fairest among women? What is thy beloved more than another beloved, that thou dost so charge us? Now, my beloved is white and ruddy, the chiefest among ten thousand. To know Christ is to find him a delight. He fills up the heart, he fills up the mind. He causes there to be joy. So I am come that you may have life, but you may have it more abundantly. So let me just say this as a final application. The knowledge of him who is our salvation is the helmet given of God to protect the mind and satisfy the heart. Well, how do we know him? That's a pretty good question at this point. You say, you've got to know Christ. Well, how do you know him? Read the scriptures. Look for Christ in providence. Those things that you see occurring in your heart and life. Seek for Christ there. Seek him in prayer. We read a verse in Psalm 46 today that also suggests another way in which you can you know the Lord Jesus. It doesn't seem to be on the surface something that makes a lot of sense, but when you think about it, it does. Do you remember we, we read, Be still and know that I am God. In other words, the Lord is saying, and when you're still, in the act of being still before God, you will come to know God. And you say, what's that mean? Refuse to give place to the devil's words. You be still. You don't take these things that the devil suggests to you and think about them, mull over them, ponder them, cause them to go over and over in your mind as legitimate in any way. You be still. Quiet your heart before God. Allow the Lord God to be God to your heart and mind. Be still. Oh, these are very obvious things. You should read the word. You should look for the Lord in providence. You should seek the Lord in prayer. And then be still before God and know him. And as you continue to know him, you will find that your mind and your heart will be protected from the things that Satan would bring against you to inflict lethal damage. I conclude by offering you 
a couple verses. I just let them stand as their own. And I say they completely substantiate what I've been trying to say to you today. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Consider him, know him. John 15, verse 7. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you, These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. And I... Mark 12 and 30. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. And with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. Knowing Christ. Loving Christ. Walking with Christ. With all that is within you. Is God's first commandment. Why? Because it is for us a very helmet that protects what we think, how we react, how we go through life, how our whole world is seen. Well, may God bless his word to us for Jesus' sake today. Father in heaven, now I pray that you will bless this word. I pray that thou will help us not to be just those that are the hearers of the word, but those that take what you say And find it to be the delight of our heart to do. Lord, help us to know Christ. Help us to know him personally, experientially. That we might find that knowledge as a keeper, a protector of our heart and mind. Bless now this word. Bless these thy people. We pray that you will go with us all from this place. May the Spirit of God continue to do his work. Again, we pray that thou will prove that the devil is not all-powerful, that he is in the sight of God and before the power of God, actually a weakling, the coward and a liar. We pray that thou will prove thyself strong on behalf of those of us now who trust in thee. Lord, let us know the power of our God that draws us to thy feet and causes us to know the joy that thou hast spoken of as we abide in thee and your words abide in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.